Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we thought we would get back into the science of a movie from the 1980s. That seems <laughs> to be something we've been uh, into lately. We did the Science of Highlander 2. It was a great success. We did uh, – we, we talked about uh, – Almost a labyrinth, not labyrinth, the dark crystal. Right. Uh, um, of course, uh, months earlier, we also did 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, that's right. Well, that's kind of a different story yeah. there. But Robert, you've been badgering me to pick a movie. And so I was thinking, I was thinking, I was thinking. And then I realized, you know, snake science is always great to talk about. Mm-hmm. And we could we could also discuss some great myths if we were to revisit a movie I loved when I was younger, Conan the Barbarian, the 1982 John Milius directed. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger starring Take on the Conan Lore by Robert E. Howard. I think it's a very different take from what I can tell. I'm not really into the old literature. But I was thinking, yeah, I wonder how this movie holds up. It's time to view Conan again. Right. So, yeah, if you're just joining Stuff to Blow Your Mind, like if you just clicked on us, said, I want to check out this science podcast, see what they're all about. Um, yeah, this is something we've been doing, uh, trying to do like one a month. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about this movie and uh, the, you know it's 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 actors it's plot it's uh, some of its more serpentine features mm. but we're going to use that as a springboard to discuss a little bit of science a little bit of myth a little bit of biology uh, all of that and uh, you know all under the uh, you know the loose heading of uh, of the science of Thulsa Doom Thulsa Doom being the uh, the, the principal antagonist in this film. Now that I've rewatched it, I agree with my much earlier assessment, which is clearly the best part of the movie. Uh, <laughs> the villain Thulsa Doom played by James Earl Jones. Now, this is like this is like peak James Earl Jones because this is 1982. He had been the voice of Darth Vader. So James Earl Jones has like has like the greatest voice of the greatest villain in genre cinema of the day. And so they're like, why not bring him in to play this this awesome charismatic cult leader? And he is still just supernaturally intense in the movie in a beautiful and hilarious way. Uh, now, I remember I loved this movie when I was younger for its like epic silliness and like the incomprehensible meat mouth Arnold performance in it. Uh, you know, he's got some hilarious facial expressions, some hilarious line delivery, but there's also a kind of beautiful operatic atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I believe uh, uh, director and writer John Milius has uh, has cited uh, you know Wagner as being uh, one of the influences on the on the uh, on the film. That's kind of not surprising, having uh, gone back and seen it, seeing it more recently, and now being aware that there are people who sort of criticized it as being fascist when it came out. I can't say I think those critics are wrong. This is, I think, not a movie uh, that one should let shape their values. No, yeah, I, I mean, I this is a film that I've I've loved for a long time and uh, and I didn't watch it in its entirety for this episode so mm-hmm. it's still been a few years since I've seen it but I went back and watched most of the Thulsa Doom segments so uh-huh. um, so, so I'm not speaking to do a recent uh, rewatch of it but yeah this is this is a film that I if you ask me do you love Conan the Barbarian I'd say yes if the, if if you would ask me is this is it a part of your your core philosophical um, <laughs> outlook no and you should be worried if it is somebody's <laughs> right yeah, because we don't live in a um, a sword and sorcery world for starters and nor should we want to i mean th- this is a kind of world where there is just a ton there's like all this blockhead macho 
violence and cruelty. I think about one thing that was shocking on rewatching it is how many scenes of there are of Conan just like punching animals. There's like a scene where he punches a camel <laughs> in the head. Uh, I'm not sure why that's in there. Uh, of course, the the I mean, it goes without saying. It's like the textbook example of objectification of women in film. So the treatment of women in it is just kind of vile. And there's this like it, it's the movie is just greased up and down with fetishization of some weird version of masculinity and obsession with weapons technology and murder. So I don't know. All, all the critics who who saw the authoritarian stuff in there, the weirdness of it, it begins with like a Nietzsche quote. So it seems to mm-hmm. John Milius, uh, obviously the director, uh, you were telling me he's the he's the person that the character of Walter in The Big Lebowski is based on. That's what I've always heard. Uh, I don't know to to what extent, but clearly they they look a lot of like they're, they're, the the look of the character is very much patterned on Milius. That made everything click for me. I was like, this is a movie that was made by Walter from The Big Lebowski. Before we go any further, let's actually just hear a sample from the trailer, just to to get it to remind everybody, uh, you know, about what we're talking about here. Warrior. Thief. Gladiator. Conqueror. Conan. All right, so we got a, a taste of the drama there, a taste of the, the music. The score is is beautiful in this film. This is one of the few... Um, you know, uh, you know, orchestra scores that I can really get behind. I love the music in it, yeah. And I, and I do think uh, in the same way that it was sort of a breakout performance for Arnold Schwarzenegger, I have read about it being uh, an important stepping stone, stone for the composer of the film as well. Oh, yes. So, yeah, obviously we have Arnold Schwarzenegger as Robert E. Howard's Pulp Era Barbarian uh, alongside uh, other newcomers because that's one of the things to keep in mind here is like Arnold had been in virtually nothing at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've been in some movies where you literally couldn't understand a single thing he said. Right. So this was this was a big deal. This this is the film that kind of made uh, Arnold. And then you also have these other kind of newcomers. Uh, Sandal Bergman is in it. Uh, uh, Jerry Lopez, who mostly made his name and still has a, a, a name as a surfer. Mm-hmm. And then alongside them, you had veteran actors Mako, Max von Sydow, and then, of course, James Earl Jones as Thulsa Doom. Uh, but uh, not to discount the, the henchmen in this film as well. He has a couple of henchmen, uh, and they are uh, Rexor and Thorgrim, and they're played by <laughs> Sven Oli Thorsen, who's in— A classic. Yeah, yeah. in every Arnold film. He's uh, this bodybuilder with this— <laughs> He's just uh, he's just got a face like somebody ate his lunch and it stayed that way forever. And he, <laughs> he he's a, he's the villain in a really funny B movie called Abraxas, Guardian of the Universe, that oh, yes. stars Jesse Ventura. They should have gotten Jesse Ventura to play a role in uh, in no, Conan. I, eh, I don't think he was ready for it. Uh, <laughs> but um, but then the other henchman uh, is played by Ben Davidson, who is this enormous. Uh, like really haggard-looking, mustachioed football player, and uh, and uh, you know, he, basically another case. Uh, really, all of these actors uh, outside of uh, Mako and Max von Sydow and some of the supporting players. You know, there were a lot of people that were brought on because they, uh, you know, they they had some sort of natural and or physical charisma, and uh, and they somehow made them work in the film. Mm-hmm. Like they they they, for instance, Ben Davidson. Not real was not really known for his acting ability. He just like, looked like a tough guy, mm-hmm. um, 
and he's just grimaces a lot in this film. But he he has this one part where he he always says is you, and it's perfectly executed in this film. Like like few there are few times where a character in a film just says a single word and it's played perfectly. Well, that's kind of how uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is, right? I mean, yeah. he's he's not much of an actor. I don't know if he ever really became much of an actor, but he's definitely not an actor in this movie. He's just he's just sort of playing himself. But uh, well, he's he 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 does. I think he does a good job in this film. But at times, it it does feel kind of like. Uh, if I'm watching, uh, say, an Italian horror movie where um, a child is being uh, menaced by a monster or something and the child mm. is screaming, yeah. and I start worrying uh, if the child – like they just said, we'll just go scare the child. We don't have to worry about the child acting. We'll just terrify them. Like to, are, are they just really beating the hell out of Arnold? And, and then that's how they filmed the scene, you know? Um, that, but that's what makes it hilarious to see bloopers from the production of Conan the Barbarian mm-hmm. where, like, uh, they're supposed to be wild dogs chasing him and they catch him and then they don't actually hurt him. But he's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so the basic plot of the film is that it's, it's set during a time before the oceans drank Atlantis in an age of high adventure. And you have this young boy, uh, the young Conan, uh, and his village is decimated by this vicious war band. His parents parents are murdered, his father's sword is taken by the villains, uh, and the boy enters a grueling life of servitude, labor, and finally gladiatorial combat. Then he's freed, and he finds a new sword in a giant's crypt, and then he eventually crosses paths with the very villains who decimated his family. Only now the leader of that uh, like band, that war band, Thulsa Doom, he's reinvented himself. Now he's this charismatic cult leader. And so... Um, Conan and some of his friends, they enter into the service of an aging king uh, to free the king's daughter from the snake cult's clutches. And in doing so, Conan discovers the source of his strength. Uh, He solves the riddle of steel. He achieves his vengeance. I mean, really, it's basically a simple revenge story. But it's it's one that is it's well made. It's well told. You know what the basic beats are going to be, but they're they're well delivered. You could pretty much find the same plot in any number of westerns or certainly in biker films. Oh, I absolutely see what you mean with uh, with the biker film, like the bizarre kind of – like the, the idolization of the on-the-road grungy lifestyle, this like sense of uh, fetishization of some – feeling about masculine individuality mm-hmm. and like you know freedom and will yeah the outlaw warrior ethos dangerous hippie religions oh that's that sort def- of thing yeah absolutely so Thulsa Doom's snake cult has all these people showing up looking like they're ready for you know Woodstock in the late 60s yeah uh, that's another way that I mean if you start to count them up that you really do start to notice all the ways that the film seems um I don't know. I mean, it's clearly like an 80s reactionary kind of thing. Yeah. Now, I do want to stress that I I fully support anybody uh, being able to just just set and enjoy Conan the Barbarian as Conan the Barbarian. Uh, yeah. And I try and I try to do that when I when I watch a film like this. Uh, but at the same time, it is an interesting exercise just to place a film within the context of its times. Take apart what it means, what it's saying. You know, what is the what is the like the what is the basic philosophy of the of the the, the feature? That sort of thing. Well, if one were trying to be generous, you could say maybe that like like when you read an ancient myth, mm-hmm. ancient myths can be enticing and beautiful because they show you something about a mindset from ages past, and they show you know they're imaginative. They they give you a different way of thinking. But almost no ancient myth, none that I can think of, has like values that I think are still good and applicable across the board. So you could think about Conan in that way, but it's also uh, 
I don't know. I mean, it it was made recently, but it's supposedly set at a time of like a lost past before any historically recorded civilization. Now, one more thing about the the legacy of uh, of this film is that that obviously it had a huge impact on uh, on the, the fantasy genre. Uh, the sword and sorcery genre in the same way that Robert E. Howard's uh, original stories were highly influential. Uh-huh. Uh, but this film in particular also uh, was just endlessly copied by various bad barbarian films to rise up in its wake, including some just truly wonderful Italian barbarian films. Oh, man, the, the Ator movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just recently, you know, what actually made me want to go back and watch Conan the Barbarian to see if, if we could do an episode about it was that I recently watched a movie called Your Hunter from the Future. Oh, yeah. Which is a hilarious 1980s Conan ripoff, just like leather diaper barbarian movie. (laughs) Uh, It's got Reb Brown, the guy from Space Mutiny, and all the Conan kind of stuff is there, but done in a cheaper, less operatic, more hilarious, and more Italian way. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so so many uh, examples of this this sort of film that I love, the Deathstalker films, um, oh, the the Lucio Fulci film, uh, Conquest. That's that's one of my favorites. I've seen that one far more recently, uh, and that is also a, a beautiful, uh, uh, violent film. But because it's Fulci, it's gross. Well, it's gross, uh, but beautiful. Yes. <laughs> Before this episode, I want to focus mainly on the idea of Thulsa Doom, not just because he's the best character in the movie. And I will say I think he's the best character in the movie, not really in any way that's on the page. It's mostly just that James Earl Jones is awesome in the role. He, oh, yeah. He, he brings that uh, that that Darth Vader gravitas. Oh, I hate – I just used a word I hate when people say. I did, <laughs> I'm sorry I said gravitas. He brings this power and intensity and subtle dignity to, uh, to the way he delivers lines about the riddle of steel and the power of flesh that normally – would get a laugh, and I think even delivered by another character in the same movie would get a laugh, but but Jones just nails it. Yeah, and I think it's also a treat for a, a lot of viewers may not be that familiar with uh, with Jones's uh, earlier work and his stage work, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, when you think of James Earl Jones, you might think of Darth Vader, where he's just doing the voice, yeah. or you're thinking of films in which you had a uh, an older James Earl Jones, uh, like a more visibly aged James Earl Jones. And uh-huh. in this, he's able to like really be physically present and uh, appear, you know, physically strong and intimidating uh, in, in a way that, you know, you certainly don't see in, um, in some of his, his later films. And, there are multiple scenes where he just stares into the camera yes. and his eyes look through you and through a thousand people behind you. Yes. It's got like the million light year gaze. Yeah, so he, it's a wonderful villain performance for sure. And he is... You know, it's it's. A, I think he's a well formulated, uh, uh, you know, villain. You know, there's not a lot of depth to him. I guess you know, you're not you're not really connecting with him as a as a as a human, <laughs> uh, in part because sometimes he's a giant snake. Uh-huh. But uh, but well, it's also just not a subtle movie. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, is, what's great about it is like you know the open vistas and the music and the operatic quality. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the characters are quite flat. Yes, and in, envisioned in what I would say is a kind of an emotionally and morally immature way. Um, like the, the it you know it takes place in a world where. I don't get any sense that there's any good or evil. There's just like strength and valor and revenge. It's a very like you might find this familiar from some 13-year-old boys you knew once. (laughs) 
Well, you know, I, well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, first of all, Crom laughs at your uh, need for <laughs> in, in emotional depth in your characters, uh, Joe. Uh, but, but also we have to remember just going back to the original source material, uh, Robert E. Howard um, died at the age of 30. So, oh, really? So all of the stories of Conan emerge uh, from, uh, you know, from his 20s. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into the, the full bio- biography of uh, Robert E. Howard, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's a case to be made that, yeah, these are, these are films that, that emerge from an extended adolescence. And, uh, you know, and people, people love them. And maybe that's part of, of, of why, you know, they speak to a sort of, you know, adolescent longing. This kind of classic teenage desire to be free and control your own destiny. Well, this reminds me of, a, of another era where you see the influence of, of Conan and Conan the Barbarian, uh, that being death metal and, uh, and, and certain, uh, you know, heavy metal acts where this, you know, the sword and sorcery elements and this kind of like stark nihilism uh, do seem to be uh, you know, uh, wrapped up in this adolescent longing. Yeah, I absolutely see that. I mean, there are a lot of bands that are basically just Conan the Barbarian, the band. Yeah. There's also Thulsa Doom, the band, apparently. I've, I'm not that familiar with them, but I, uh, I, I had to listen to just a little of them, get a sample of it before I went in here. Is it any good? I sounded pretty good. It's not death metal. I want to be clear on that. Mm-hmm. But it's a uh, yeah, it sounded all right. Maybe we can we can hear from uh, fans of Thulsa Doom, uh, the band, and uh, you guys can uh, can educate us more on them. Well, they knew the best character from the movie to name uh, to name their band after. Because uh, one last thing I'll say about it before we move on to the the mythology and the science. I will say I was shocked to read that in reviews at the time the movie came out, which were, you know, they were mixed. It was like polarizing to critics. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently, a lot of critics criticized James Earl Jones' performance. And they were (laughs) like, this is, you know, this is unsubtle. It's not tasteful. It's camp. And I was like, well, I mean, it might be camp, but it's awesome. Yeah, that's like, I mean, that's like criticizing Rocky Horror Picture Show for all its camp. Oh, of course it's got camp. That's what I came for, the camp. Tim Curry's really over the top. <laughs> He's really over the top. He could have been a lot more subtle, you know. Um, I don't know how you can, well, I mean, every criticism of Conan the Barbarian makes sense to me except the one that criticizes James Earl Jones. Well, you know, it's like another recent example that really has a lot in common with Conan the Barbarian because it's also a revenge picture mm-hmm. and certainly is nostalgic for films of this age. Uh, uh, Panos Cosmatos is uh, Mandy, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I, I, it also a film that probably polarized audiences a bit. Some people, you, it seems like a film where you either love it or you don't really get it. I think um, one difference there is that there's a much clearer ironic distance uh, yeah, going on true. W- with, the, with the creation of Mandy. Right. Well, you know, whereas John Milius is looking looking to Wagner and other influences. Mm. Uh, Panos is looking to the films of yesteryear, so there's like a, you know, a degree of uh, removal. Yeah. But, but that's a film where you have, uh, you have a charismatic cult leader played uh-huh. by a terrific actor, um, and then you also have the... Um, <laughs> you, we have a hero uh, that's most, certainly more an established actor in uh, Nicolas Cage, but I don't know. You could make some comparison between like the, the raw, visceral nature of these performances, I guess. Yeah. Well, Cage is not super subtle in Mandy. Right. But it's a <laughs> film like it, both of those performances in Mandy, the villain, uh, uh, the, the antagonist and the protagonist. Yeah, they're both uh, – they both have a lot of frenzied energy to them. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I wouldn't want it any other way. Absolutely. So maybe let me sum up my thoughts. My thoughts are Conan in some ways kind of great, still kind of beautiful, still kind of excellent camp, but also all the criticisms make sense. Don't let your sons grow up to be Conans. (laughs) 
All right, well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to jump uh, into the, the meat of this episode or episodes. Who knows how long it'll go? Maybe we'll have to split it in half. You know, uh, we'll see how it goes here. But uh, when we come back, we're going to discuss snake magic. All right, we're back. So Thulsa Doom, played by James Earl Jones in the film, uh, as distinguished, I want to be clear, from Thulsa Doom in the Robert E. Howard short stories that Conan is based on, which I believe is actually a totally different character. I think we basically got sort of one type of villain from the Howard stories, but with the name of another one. Basically, they pulled a Velociraptor Denonicus here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have one thing and you gave it the, the name of the other. Uh, so uh, my understanding, and I've only read like one or two uh, Robert E. Howard stories uh, mm-hmm. in my life, but – uh, my understanding is that the actual Thulsa Doom character is more like what Skeletor is in Masters of the Universe. Okay. Uh, but so we're talking about the one in the movie played by right. James Earl Jones. He in the movie is a sorcerer and a high priest or a cult leader in the Cult of Set, which is a snake-based religion. So in the movie mythology, Set is a giant snake god. Now, snakes play a role in many myths and religions. Uh, We've discussed the various primordial world serpents on the show before, as well as the, you know, regenerative themes sometimes associated with the shedding of a snake's skin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, yeah, a snake, like, sheds its old body almost. You know, it seems to take on new life. And, uh, you know, since time out of mind, people have found magic and intrigue in that. I think that's a classic example of biomythology. You know, where biological facts inspire mythological archetypes. And uh, and this sort of thing's been associated with everything from fertility gods uh, to the depictions uh, of snakes in the Old Testament. Uh, we've seen them as creatures of the underworld and the river of lightning and thunder. And it shouldn't be surprising that an animal we're so hardwired to notice uh, should play, you know, would play such an important role in our sacred traditions. And we've discussed this on the show before, but there are, while it is still an open question, I think there is still some debate. There appears to me to be pretty good evidence that uh, we we recognize certain animal forms such as snakes, especially including mm-hmm. snakes, in a kind of hardwired way. Like their forms attract uh, attention from babies who have not yet had time to be conditioned to respond to snakes. And so snake religions, the use of snakes and snake symbolism in various religious practices, it really just it, – it's all over the place. I mean you can even go to even more recent uh, adaptations of the symbolisms or uh, – uh, take uh, 20th century America. There's the rise of uh, the Appalachian uh, uh, practice of snake handling uh, as a test of faith. Well, yeah, in the long ending of the Gospel of Mark in the Bible, uh, this is a part of the Gospel of Mark that I think is generally considered by uh, Bible scholars to not have been a part of the book originally, but mm-hmm. something that was added on later. But it says that people who have faith in Christ will take up uh, uh, deadly serpents in their hands and they will not harm them. And they'll drink poison. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's a great indication that, you know, what's thought – Let's like, what, where's the first place our brain goes in the idea of defying death? You know, the mir- miraculous survival, it's like, well, it's being able to hold snakes, <laughs> which is funny because I, I think most snakes are not actually that dangerous to humans even if you are bitten and envenomated. Well, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it depends in large part on where you are in the world and then also like how, uh, you know, how close you're getting to these snakes, right? Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, I'm going to talk about the god Set. So we got the cult of Set, right? Um, There is an actual god in Egyptian religion and mythology named Set or Seth, 
But this god is very different from the fictional snake god set in the Conan movies. And I wanted to talk about the real god set. Let's do it. Spread the, the word of set. Okay. So my main source here is uh, Geraldine Pinch's book on Egyptian mythology from Oxford University Press. Uh, and so one thing about this is, of course, ancient Egypt covers a vast time scale. So when you look into the roles of different gods or symbols in Egyptian mythology, you're going to see a lot of different stories over time. There's not right. just one story of Set that's the only one. Yeah, we, we always have to stress this when we're talking about mythology because even in with something like Greek mythology, mm -hmm. this is the case. It is not – there's not like one Set pantheon. It's not like here the, here's the first edition uh, Greek pantheon uh, god and goddess cards. Collect them all and know exactly where they rank. Right. Uh, no, things are emerging, evolving, uh, geography, different regions, different peoples are coming into play, changing traditions as well. And that's certainly the case in Egyptian traditions. Absolutely the case. And, and Set or Seth is no example. But I just want to talk about some common features and things that appear in the texts here and there. So Set was often understood as a creature of chaos, and he was the sometimes enemy of his brother Osiris, who is a very important figure in uh, Egyptian religion. Set and Osiris are two of the five children of the sky goddess Nut, N-U-T, and the earth god Geb. And in many texts, Set eventually murders Osiris, either with direct violence or through some kind of complicated assassination plot. Pinch writes that, quote, Seth acts as a catalyst in Egyptian myth. His thoughtless actions are bad in themselves but can lead to good outcomes such as that of Osiris becoming the ruler of the underworld. And she also gives the example that uh, I'll talk about more in a minute that, that Seth's brute strength is sometimes needed to defend the gods against even worse beings. Uh, and in other later mythologies, to, to compare this to, it sort of reminds me somewhat of the role of Loki in Norse mythology, who is a troublemaker and ultimately a great enemy, but also in many stories an indispensable ally or a catalyst for important developments. Also, like with a lot of cultures in history, you see in ancient Egyptian mythology a sort of suite of associations between on one hand you've got order and civilization and the homeland, and then on the other side you've got chaos, the wilderness or untamed nature, and foreign lands. And at times there seems to be an opposition where Osiris represents a sense of order, of civilization, and of Egyptianness, while Set represents chaos and the untamed aspect of nature or the, you know, the wild desert and foreigners or foreignness. And this also sort of comes through with the god's consort. So the main consort of Osiris was his sister, Isis. Um, but Set's consorts include his sister, uh, Nephthys, but also goddesses from foreign cultures. So sometimes his consorts are goddesses like Anat or Astarte, who are Semitic goddesses from the areas northeast of Egypt, like around the Levant. So Set, Set gets into a lot of trouble. He does bad stuff all the time. In various texts, he's known for breaking taboos, committing crimes. Sometimes he'll chop down a sacred tree or he'll kill a sacred animal you're not supposed to mess with. He's also accused of kind of strange sexual taboos. Like in one story, uh, he attempts to in enact some kind of sex act on the god Horus, which results in the birth of Thoth, who is a god of the moon, who's associated with like wisdom and scholarship and magic, uh, who would seem to sort of represent a merging of order and chaos. 
Now, in that Osiris myth where, uh, where, where Set kills his brother Osiris, the ancient Egyptian religion placed a lot of significance on the power of the dead body of Osiris, like that even after death, his body uh, controlled things like the crops or the, you know, the, the cycles of flooding in the Nile. And so after Set killed him, it seems that Set couldn't leave well enough alone. And in some tellings, he just continues to try to like tamper with and mutilate the body of Osiris even after he's already dead. And so one type of ritual in ancient Egyptian religion is that you'd have priesthoods that had ritual retaliations against Set, in which the chaos god would be killed and castrated and mutilated in effigy. So as you can see so far, Set is a, a complex figure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, he's getting some kind of devil characteristics mm -hmm. already. Uh, and, and that goes on to, to extend to this, this chaos component, right? He's associated with the wilderness. And this means he's, he's all the bad vibes of the desert, right? He's barren wastes where nothing could grow. He's floods and sandstorms and dangerous and unclean wild animals. And he could take the form of many known animals like wild cats or crocodiles or wild wild asses, but he also represented uh, – he's also represented sometimes as a specific, perhaps fictional animal, not a snake, but a strange four-legged creature with a long snout. And we'll come back to that in a bit because that's a really interesting question about the mythology of Set. But uh, when placed in opposition to Osiris or the uh, the other good god Horus, Seth is sometimes presented in um, Pinch's words as, quote, massively strong and monumentally stupid. Hmm. And this is funny because I feel like this is kind of how Conan himself reads to me in the movie. I know this is somewhat different than uh, the more clever character who's in the original stories. In the movie – I don't know if you read it differently, Robert, but to me in the movie, Thulsa Doom, the villain, is presented as cunning and subtle and intelligent and complex, whereas Conan's supposed virtues seem to be his strength and his courage and his lack of cunning or complexity. He's the mythical straight shooter, right? You know, he's just kind of – he is what he is. He's a, a simple kind of man and he, you know, he, he goes out and he's strong and he does what – you know, he's like will incarnate. Yeah, I mean, he is, he is kind of an agent of chaos, right, as opposed to uh, Thulsa Doom's uh, – the, the order that Thulsa Doom has created in the world. Yeah. Uh, there's almost kind of a butterfly effect, right? There's this, 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 this one event, this one massacre, this one child that, uh, that he allows to let live. Like this child uh, like spins off and becomes this thing that will bring about his downfall, this, this, uh, this, this unpredictable, uh, chaotic element that, that just steadily brings everything down in the end. Uh -huh. And is not very – not necessarily represented as very mentally subtle or complex. I no, mean, no. Conan's kind of a meathead. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. That's, 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 uh, you know, that's definitely part of the text, right? Yeah. He's, um, you know, he just – he knows what he wants and he goes after it, be it, uh, you know, jewels or women or ultimately uh, vengeance. So I think maybe Conan should have been the one aligned with Set in the movie. I think maybe the movie got it backwards. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. But it also gets more complex because there are some stories from ancient Egypt where Set is not just a villain or enemy of the gods of order. Quote, 
One of the secrets revealed in the Royal Underworld books was the joining of the two lords, uh, and that would be Set and Horus, into one double-headed being to combat the forces of chaos in the hour of greatest danger. Uh, And so that's also going to come back in an interesting way to some symbology in the movie that we'll talk about. Uh, But yeah, so Set sometimes joins forces with the supposed good guys like Horus or the solar deity uh, Ray to defeat the chaos monster that is the serpent Apep or Apophis. So you may have heard this uh, mythodynamic before, but here's how it basically works. Okay, so every day you got a solar boat. You know, it goes across the sky with right. the sun. Yeah, that's the, how it's getting across. Yeah, so it's going across the sky. It's bearing the god ray, makes its journey across the sky, and then at sunset it dips over the horizon. What happens when you dip over the horizon? Well, you go into the underworld. Right. So every night the boat bearing ray and the gods and the sun, it goes over the horizon and it has to journey through the underworld and this is what nighttime is. So every night during this treacherous voyage through the underworld, a snake dragon called Apep or Apophis attacks the boat of the sun trying to kill ray and stop the sun from rising. Yeah, and Apep is is like the, the true snake god uh, – Uh, entity from Egyptian mythology. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And one of the main defenders of the boat, ironically, was Set, the strong wild god. He would crush or club or spear or bind the snake every night, and then it would revive or escape and attack again the next night. So every night, the earthly priests would perform rituals to help the gods, including Set, win over the great snake. And some of these uh, rituals involved making models or effigies of the monster and then they would curse the model and destroy it or stab it or crush it or burn it with fire. So the priests would kind of act out the role of the mighty and dangerous chaos god set in order to defeat an even greater and more evil enemy, this this monster of chaos, uh, Apep or Apophis. Now, snakes are not always bad or evil in ancient literature. Earlier, Robert, you mentioned that snakes are often a symbol of something like rebirth, and that that appears also in Egyptian literature. Sometimes they represent rebirth. Sometimes they represent creation or other positive attributes. But I would say not here. It seems to me that uh, Apep or Apophis is nasty to the core. Yeah. And I like the way that the character of Set becomes more complex like this over time. Uh, that, you know, he, he might be a bad guy in some ways, but he's, he's even if he's monumentally stupid, he's big and strong and you need his help to defeat the even worse monster. It's kind of <laughs> like that scene in the movie where you have to team up with the villain from the previous movie. It's like when the, the X-Men have to recruit Magneto to oh, help yeah. them Yeah, or this something. is a common uh, trope in any kind of uh, like multi-entry series, right? Mm. Uh, if you still have a, a villain from an, an earlier film, like you're running out of things to do with them to a certain extent, so you have to find new uses for them. But then this also ties into the, the mythic tradition. Yeah. But I want to come back to the interesting question uh, we alluded to a minute ago from Egyptian mythology, not not in the movie, the, the Egyptian mythology of Set. What was this Set animal? So we know that Set was not a snake. In fact, Set was very much involved in slaying the great evil snake. What, what was this animal he was associated with? We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll find out. All right, we're back. So when you think of the Egyptian gods and goddesses, 
I, I think you, one tends to think of those uh, humanoid figures with animal heads. Yeah. And it's, and it's easy to just work along those lines, right? And just uh, think, okay, uh, this animal plus this body equals this god. And for the most part, that seems to, to be how it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you see the, like the jackal-headed uh, Anubis, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. But when we look at Set, the, the weird thing is that this doesn't seem to necessarily be an easily identifiable animal. He has this head that, I mean, you kind of glance at it, you might think, oh, it's some sort of dog or maybe it's a bird, but, uh, but it's not. It's clearly something else. And in fact, uh, the crazy thing about Set is that we're still not exactly sure what animal Set is supposed to be based upon. We can't look at him and say, oh, it's a jackal. That's clearly that's the head of a jackal, and then we can extrapolate what that symbology might mean. Uh-huh. No, with the said animal, oh, it's been there have been so many different uh, theories. So, so some have said, well, maybe it's an aardvark or a donkey or a jackal or a, an, an oryx, a hare, a taper, even though they're non-existent in Africa, no matter what you saw in 2001, A Space Odyssey, or it's a finnick fox. Uh, I've also seen some early 20th century writings that speculated that it was a domestic pig, <laughs> or that it's the head of a mythical compound animal, you know, some manner of griffin or sphinx, because ah. that's another possibility, right? Like, we, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that ancient people had had no imagination or that they could only work along the lines of like real animal head plus real person body. Like they could also say, well, the head of a mythological animal would work here as well. Yeah. And in fact, we know, I mean, there are multiple different kinds of non-existent animals that were invoked in the uh, beliefs of ancient peoples. There are some things that they believed to be sort of like spiritual or otherworldly animals, Mm -hmm. things they wouldn't expect to see out in nature. There were also animals that they just believed were part of nature that we don't have any evidence ever existed. Right. And we'll get back to that because that raises some interesting questions. Uh, Percy E. Newberry wrote uh, in 1928 that it it had also been suggested that the said animal might be a greyhound. Because one of the things, like it has ears and it has this kind of snout, but it's kind of a downturned snout. Mm -hmm. Um, So so certainly like the the aardvark comes to mind when you look at it. It looks kind of like a cartoon aardvark. Uh, but anyway, Newberry also brought up the possibility that it was an animal that the ancient Egyptians were not that familiar with. So I'm reminded of geographically removed depictions of rhinos and lions and other animals in ancient traditions where, you know, some like a Western artist doesn't really know what a rhino looks like. They're basing an illustration on descriptions of the rhino. Right. Or say lions in Chinese uh, de- depictions where uh, the depiction kind of takes on a life of its own, be- kind, of, kind of becomes this thing between reality and, and fantasy. Yeah. And then another idea that's come up is just it's the idea that this is an animal that had gone extinct. Hmm. Uh, to quote Max uh, Muller, an Egyptologist from 1918, writing on this, quote, an animal which had perhaps become extinct in prehistoric times or that the figure of it had been drawn from an archaic statue of so crude a type that it defied all zoological knowledge of subsequent artists. So, I, you know, that's an interesting idea. Both of those are, are interesting ideas to think about, too. Like it's either like the telephone game of depictions of things mm-hmm. where they're basing it on some other depiction or, yeah, what if this is uh, based on some sort of animal that went extinct during uh, the Egyptian era? Hmm. Um, I mean, it's entirely possible. 
Uh, I've also read that the curved nose might have simply been introduced at some point to distinguish um, a dog or jackal-based set from the jackal-headed uh, Anubis. So hmm. it could have been a situation where like, oh, look, guys, we can't have two jackal-headed gods. This is going to get kind of confusing. Uh, let's give uh, Set a downturn nose. Oh, this could be yet another case like we talked about in a certain possibilities about depictions of the unicorn where sometimes a belief in a mythical animal could be just based on some type of artistic convention, like the idea that a unicorn idea could have been inspired by somebody drawing an oryx. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, with the side profile. Yes. Now, from what I can tell, this is still something of an open question in Egyptology as well. Like, there's there's no clear answer on what the set animal actually was. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, this is a. I have to admit, I, I really wasn't familiar with the, the these questions about the set animal until I started researching this. I always just kind of glanced at set. I, I focused more on sets' roles in these various uh, uh, myths, and uh, I didn't really stop to question what he was supposed to be. Um, but but now I look at him and I'm like, yeah, there's there's kind of a slight Gonzo element there, right? Gonzo <laughs> from the Muppets. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've never read With that there was any intentional set iconography in Gonzo uh, because, of course, the Muppet <laughs> Gonzo is, of course, considered a, a, a whatever, I believe, is the, is, 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 what is, is the joke that they often made. Oh, I, where I do they say that? I don't remember. Um, I think just at various times it comes up like Gonzo's a whatever. I think Gonzo identifies as being a whatever. Okay. Um, Though they did, I think, in 1999's Muppets from Space, they introduced the idea that Gonzo is an alien species. Oh, that's a bad move. <laughs> Why not just leave the mystery open? Yeah. And and I'm not saying that Set was an alien. That's not where I'm going oh. with all this. Uh, we're not going there at all. But imagine future beings examining like an incomplete visual history of the 20th and 21st centuries on Earth. Uh -huh. What would they make of Gonzo? Yeah. Uh, what would they make of Goofy and Pluto from uh, the Disney pantheon? What would they make of Snoopy or Totoro or, you know, other cartoon animals and animal-like creatures? Yeah, I think this is uh, this is a great point to make. I mean, and this is part of what you were talking about a minute ago. You know, you never want to forget that creative imagination exists. Right. Uh, you know, we end up saying this a lot. Just because you see something represented in art made by a human doesn't mean that they saw something like that. And sometimes I think people have that impulse. It's like, wow, what inspired them? to draw this maybe they were just being weird you know we're we're weird we come up with weird stuff all right well as expected uh we're gonna have to break this episode into two so we're gonna go ahead and call it for now but we're gonna be back in the next episode where we're gonna talk about uh, uh the symbol of set in uh, the movie uh how that relates to both uh, uh, symbolic and mythological two-headed snakes and real life two-headed snakes uh, we're going to look at uh, at snake arrows. And, of course, we'll turn to the world of natural world giant serpents. We'll go all the way down the snake hole. That's right. In the meantime, if you want to check out more Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find it all. And if you want to support the show, always remember that the best thing you can do is rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Make sure you have subscribed. And uh, if you haven't yet, check out Invention. That's the other show that we do. Uh, make sure you subscribe to that as well. It is uh, an invention-by-invention invention look at human techno history. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.